0: Welcome to the Wealth Time Freedom Podcast, where we decode the psychology of money, uncover the principles of personal finance, and learn how to put them into practice. This is all about escaping the rat race so we can win the game of life. It's personal finance, but with a big old dollop of personal development. If you're looking for answers, looking for motivation, or looking for help, you're in the right place. Our mission for this channel is to help you get as far as you can on your own, and then if you want to go further and faster, we can help with that too. Let's dive in. Hello there, it's Terry, and I'm here to introduce you to the first expert in this Bitcoin bear market series, Robert Breelove. Robert is one of the most compelling voices in Bitcoin, and the body of work he's put together had a huge impact on our thinking. His podcast and his writings have been downloaded tens of millions of times, and that's because he's facilitated and presented many of the most important conversations on the subject And as you'll see in this episode, he's a unique mix of philosopher, educator, and subject matter expert when it comes to the new world of cryptocurrency and then also the old world of traditional finance. And in this conversation, we discuss the unique set of circumstances that primed Robert to understand Bitcoin and devote his professional life to it, why there must be a real cost to produce money and the human suffering that occurs when there isn't, and how the price of money impacts our ability to plan, think, and also relate to each other. And my favorite part of this episode is where we explored the link between the number zero and Bitcoin. Now, I know that sounds weird, but it's an incredibly insightful way to frame the way you think about what Bitcoin actually is and what it could do for humanity as a breakthrough innovation in monetary technology. Now, this episode starts a little slowly as we explore Robert's early influences, but as you'll soon see, the background actually gives really important context and credibility to the assertions that he makes later on in the episode. So, time to settle in for a conversation that's going to challenge you to question convention and also give you a deep appreciation for the issues and the opportunities that lie ahead. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Hey, man. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I'd love to start with, I guess, your early influences, your background, where you grew up, and just really understand where you're coming from.
1: Well, I grew up mostly in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'd always just been kind of a naturally curious kid when I was like six years old protesting my mom telling her I knew that Santa Claus was bullshit and she needed to admit it and I just didn't believe it even to the point where I I think I stayed up all night one night to make sure he didn't come so it always been a little bit argumentative disagreeable curious and then when I got to I guess sixth grade is when they started assigning us summer reading Go to school in the fall and in the spring, and then we'd have a summer break for whatever, two and a half months, maybe. So I'm probably 11 years old. They assigned us a book to take home for the summertime. And your task is to basically read the book over the summer, and then you come in and you write a book report on it when you come back to school in the fall. I was assigned the book Hatchet. And this book is about a little boy that's flying across a wilderness. I want to say in Canada, I could be wrong where it was. And He's basically in a, you know, like a single engine propeller plane with pilot and himself flying somewhere. The plane crashes, pilot dies. So the boy is like stranded in the wilderness alone, effectively. And he had a hatchet, hence the namesake of the book. And then the rest of the book is his story, like how he survived what he did, basically. And it was just a very interesting story. And obviously I could read before then, but when I realized that I could pick up any book that I wanted and dive into these alternate universes, or dive into the minds of other people. Like, it's funny that that book that really got me hooked on reading, obviously, is a fiction book. But since then, almost immediately, I went nonfiction, and I've just never looked back. I've read probably less than 10 fiction books my whole life. I've probably read several hundred nonfiction books. I don't know how many. But my mom had already kind of indoctrinated into me that education was the solution to any problem. Whatever problem you have in the world, it doesn't matter if you're sick, if your car's broken down, if... You're hungry, if you're lost, it's a lack of knowledge basically is the deficiency. If you find the knowledge and implement it properly, then you can solve the problem. So I already had that as kind of my base layer of programming. And then when I figured out I could just pick up books at will and like arm myself, almost programming yourself is maybe a good way to think about it. I went ballistic because I like grew up in Tennessee, we are outdoors a lot. So we're camping and riding four wheelers and fishing and outdoors all the time. And I was always obsessed with the night sky. Like when there's clear nights in Tennessee and you could just see a deep dark field of stars, I would just stare at them and wonder, what in the world is all this? What are the answers? I just wanted answers. So when I came to this realization that I could go and grab books based on my own selection to find answers, I went straight for that. Actually, I started reading about astrophysics when I was young, like I said, probably 11, 12, 13 I remember I would go to the bookstore and I would just go. The astrophysics session tended to be very slim. You'd have like multiple, multiple, multiple sections on history or politics or self-help. And then you go to astrophysics and it's like one little tiny slim column. But I just started reading as much as I could. I was reading Stephen Hawking. I was reading Brian Greene. Basically books that I could barely understand or comprehend. Just reading well above my level. And just taking it slowly and doing the best I could. And I found it to be very enriching, sort of satisfy that curiosity to some extent. And I learned a lot and just got a habit or a taste for reading. I don't know if it's nature or nurture, like we were talking about earlier. Definitely had the nurture from my mom. And I guess maybe I had the nature to be linguistic or curious about reading, I suppose. And that's been kind of a lifelong thing for me ever since. I've been a very aggressive reader. And... So I grew up in Chattanooga High School. Then I went to college in Knoxville, Tennessee. I studied accounting and finance. I had a master's degree in accounting with a focus in taxation, which is somewhat ironic now that I speak out against taxation so strongly, but I've definitely seen the belly of the beast up close and personal. And other early influences, started reading The Economist magazine in my late teens. That was something I kept up throughout college and into kind of my young adult years. That was a great magazine, really good writing, wide spectrum of topics. It's not just about economics. There's a whole science section. There's a culture, arts, technology, all of this. But the problem with that magazine in retrospect, I didn't know this at the time, is that it's all the economics in that magazine are bullshit, frankly. It's Keynesian economics. So you're not ever going to learn anything about the principles of economics or what I would call natural economics or Austrian economics, just wasn't present in that magazine at all. But my attempt to satisfy my curiosity about the business world, geopolitics, economics, how does this whole big machine work? And so that was helpful and that it, again, helped me elevate my game as far as reading and writing went. But I still had this hole in my understanding that I have Austrian economics, frankly. When did
0: you cut on that there was something else or there would be something more?
1: Not for a while, actually. So I did find the creature from Jekyll Island and a few other books related to central banking. This was 2004 or 5, so I'm probably 20 years old at this time. And so my realization there was once you've read about like you just we were talking about the Snyder series offline, central banking is the problem in the world. Like if you have to pick one problem worldwide, it is for sure the central bank. They steal from everyone, no one understands it and they use the proceeds to wage warfare. So it's like, if you don't like theft, you don't like ignorance, and you don't like warfare, well, central banking is the core of all those problems, at least in the realm of economics on the ignorance piece. So discovered that was a real problem in the world, the real problem in my estimation, but at the same time was kind of impotent to do anything about it. I didn't know what could be done about it. Felt like I found the bottom of a rabbit hole, but it was a very dissatisfying discovery. Yeah and that you see the thing, but you can't do anything about the thing. So I moved on to life. I just went out into the work world. I was in public accounting for some time. Eventually got into finance roles in private industry, mostly focused on tech. I spent most of my early career as like a finance chief. Also helped with some operations stuff, some early-stage and mid-stage companies. And then from public accounting to finance world. I was learning about myself enough to know that I didn't want to work for anyone. Maybe this was my internal freedom maximalist starting to rear his head, but I just really wanted to work for myself. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. So I eventually jumped ship. I had a really good role with a tech company and I decided to just go and start my own business. And I basically had one client as a consulting client and um, I just jumped in. And so the good thing I did, because that gave me kind of the freedom. I was already looking at crypto, trying to understand what it was a little bit, but I didn't have a lot of time on my hands with the executive role. So when I jumped out of that, I had a lot more time on my hands. And that is what got me into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, ultimately. It's kind of ironic that I discovered through Ethereum's marketing campaign, the concept of smart contracts. But I heard this term and I started researching it like what is a smart contract when i eventually found nick zabo's work on smart contracts from the late 90s that was my big aha moment in that a smart contract is basically a piece of code that automates a commercial relationship the classic example he gives in that written piece is the vending machine if buyer puts in 75 cents and presses b8 then they get a candy bar right that's it's just an automated relationship between buyer and seller so the vending machine would be a very simple smart contract, which you could scale this thing up to something much more sophisticated, like global finance, right? Global finance yes. is a smart contract. It doesn't serve any other purpose other than intermediating buyers and sellers or lenders and borrowers of capital, which is the same thing. There's no actual productive economic function that they're supplying. It's an information system. So we have global finance, which is a huge piece of US GDP, a lesser but still large piece of global GDP. That's currently facilitated by human beings. And my light bulb was like, holy shit, all these human beings, these white collar guys and girls, in the same way that the Industrial Revolution disrupted blue collar work (laughs) to a large extent, right? Instead of being the classic shoemaker, all of a sudden you have a shoe factory, or instead of being in weaving and textiles, right? That all goes into a factory. Human labor was being jettisoned out of that industry. My realization was that white collar labor was going to be similarly jettisoned as a result of smart contracts. So, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a big deal. I want to be a part of this. I had saved up a little bit of capital from my working days. And so I started investing, basically. I was just buying top market cap-weighted crypto assets. I think initially it was just on Coinbase. They had Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. That's why I just bought those. And then, as I always like to say when I tell this story, where my money went, my mind followed. Mm. And so I started studying what I had bought. And that's what really got me into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I was learning through the fire hose throughout all of 2017. And then when Safe Dean's book, The Bitcoin Standard, came out in April 2018, I was lucky or smart enough to buy it immediately. I bought it when it first came out and read it immediately. And then I was like, okay, that's what connected the dots for me. Like this is the answer to the central banking problem that I identified so many years ago. And Mm -hmm. that's when it all just crystallized. So that's April, 2018. By November, I have a Bitcoin tattoo under my arm. So (laughs) I decided this was more than just a financial revolution. It's an ethical revolution. It's a moral revolution. It's a humanitarian movement, basically, masked as a get-rich-quick scheme to people that don't understand it. And that's it. I should also mention that I launched a hedge fund and ended up running two hedge funds actually. During that time, I operated those from early 17 until late 2020. And then my last change was in 2020, I decided that what am I doing spending all my time, blood, sweat, tears trying to outperform Bitcoin, which is the benchmark in the fund space. It's like if you can't generate alpha in Bitcoin terms, or if you can't outperform Bitcoin said so differently, and that's net of fees. So you need to outperform Bitcoin before performance fee, then it's not really worth it to be in the business.
0: Did you just say that Bitcoin is the benchmark for hedge funds?
1: If you're in the crypto asset fund, yeah.
0: So it wasn't equities and all that sort of stuff. It was more crypto asset hedge fund. No,
1: we're crypto asset focused. And so through that journey, I started writing, obviously studying a lot, trading a lot, sharing investor updates monthly with my LPs. And the whole time you could track the investor updates. I'm just getting more and more Bitcoin maximalized as I go along. Even to the point where we started out as like a multi-coin, multi-strategy fund, probably the end of 18 were just Bitcoin and Bitcoin options, really just trying to outperform Bitcoin. But anyways, my realization there was, what am I doing? Spending everything that I've got trying to outperform Bitcoin when I could just buy and hold Bitcoin and then go do what I want or what I like to do. And what I was wanting to do more of was more writing, more talking. Some of the pieces I had published were becoming popular. My podcast appearances were becoming popular. So I just leaned into that. I'll credit my conversation with Michael Saylor as well, because obviously he's the most important ambassador for Bitcoin, as far as I can tell. And then he also has a passion for education. He has the Saylor Academy that is basically a free university. They've given out like half a million diplomas worldwide. And so I had the thing for education originally, but I didn't know it was going to be full time. I was just going to launch the podcast and it'd be like a passion project. But then my first guest was Saylor. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this thing full time. That's been it. I've just been working on the What Is Money show and I have a substack called the Freedom Analects. I publish probably four to eight pieces per month there and uh, working towards publishing a book at some point and uh, doing a lot more public speaking engagements in the meantime. So now I am a fully loaded skin in the game Bitcoin educator freedom maximalist guy. And that's what I do for a living and I love it. I'm overwhelmed with the feedback I get from people to like go and see people. It's one thing to sit here in person in isolation, alone, write and think for months and months. You get feedback through social media and whatnot, but it's not the same. But you do all that kind of working in a vacuum. You don't feel the feedback. And then I go to something like the Bitcoin conference in Miami and you can't take 10 steps without someone stopping you and thanking you and like tell you help my family or my business. And so now I'm like, man, my life feels good. I like to read. I'm learning to like to write and I get to create value for other people in a way that captures value for my family. So I'm very satisfied with life.
0: Yeah. I find that journey so perfect in terms of setting you up for what you're doing now, because what I heard there was your upbringing still in you just a intense curiosity for learning and knowing. And that curiosity led you to read a lot of books and reading a lot I find, is a great way to think more clearly. So learning language and how people are phrasing things, and I think that's what makes you unique in the space is your ability to articulate what exactly is going on here and why it's a problem. Whereas you've got very technical people that really do understand things like down to the studs, but struggle to package that knowledge in a way that makes it useful and more accessible for everybody else. But you then also have the traditional finance background going in and understanding how traditional finance works, what the whole system looks like from inside then out. Then moving into the crypto space, seeing it all broadly, and then coming to the conclusion that, actually, this is the most important thing. Do you feel like, I guess, that whole pathway is what sets you up to be unique in that sense as a voice?
1: I suppose it's interesting how organic and idiosyncratic it was first of all my aim for myself when i was much younger like going into college i was like uh i don't know what i want to do in college so i'll go to business school i wanted to be a Mm -hmm. businessman whatever that means i've talked to what that even means thought it meant like carry a briefcase send some faxes, cash some checks you know i don't know (laughs) i get into business school and they're like okay what major do you want You know, there's marketing and finance and accounting and logistics and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. I just wanted to be a businessman. I guess I'll do, what's the hardest one? And they're like, oh, well, accounting is really hard. I was at Tennessee, University of Tennessee. So we had like the 12th ranked accounting program in the country, something like that. My dad was also an accountant. So I'm like, okay, that makes sense. You know, probably got a little bit of the nature if dad did it and it's the hardest thing to do, I always like to take on a big challenge. So I'll just do that. And I get into accounting. I graduate with accounting go to get my master's degree. I'm like, all right, well, you got to choose again. You have to choose audit or you have to choose tax. Which one do you want to do? I'm like, I have no idea. Just give me the hard one, whichever one's harder. I'm like, well, tax sucks. Everyone hates it. It's really hard. I'm like, all right, I'll do that one. Yeah, I didn't know what I was working towards at all. I should probably back up to you because you asked about early influences and I don't tell this one as often, but I think it's pretty relevant. That Around the same time I started reading actually, like 11 or 12, I'd always played video games my whole life from probably like five years old. I'd played Nintendo. And when I was seven or eight years old, we got a PlayStation for Christmas and we got two video games with it. One of them was Final Fantasy VII. I don't know if you've ever heard of this game. It's a role-playing game is what they call it, RPG. But you could think of it as like playing a novel basically like you're a little character in this giant world and you walk up to people and you talk to them and you make decisions and your decisions influence how the story branches and changes to beat the game you end up playing for like hundreds of hours again your decisions change the history of the game so there's not like a linear path it's there's all these different paths you can go down that also contributed to my love for reading i think that just to play that game you had to read so much so again, that was around seven or eight years old. And then later on, I started playing this game, Diablo 2, when I'm probably 11 or 12 years old. This is a massive online multiplayer game. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons in a way, but you're a character in a game with other players from all around the world. You know, there's millions of people that played this thing all over the world. And there's a lot of reading and whatnot there, a lot of character customization. But the real novel thing about that game for me was... There was an in-game economy. So you'd go into these dungeons and like you'd fight to level up your guy and find these rare items, you know, rare swords and shields and armor and everything in the world. But then you could leave the game and go into these trade networks, and there were hundreds of these things all over the world, you know? And people would trade these items. So they are always trading. There was a naturally emergent currency in the game too, because it really just barter in the game. But people started using these rings, they were called Stone of Jordan rings as the currency like they would price things instead of Jordan rings and whatever. So long story short, I ended up, started playing the game, but ended up playing the trade channels. I was playing the economics of the game rather than the game itself. And I got rich in the game. Like I was accumulating a lot of wealth, just buying low and selling high. And so I ended up becoming kind of like a little video game kingpin rich guy where all my friends would come to me like, Hey, can I have some of this armor? Can I have this? That I think really left a mark on me. And that I got to see or learn economics 101 kind of in the trenches. You know, you're just, you're trading digital assets effectively. That all sounds kind of silly for a lot of people. But what ultimately happened to that game when I was probably 14, 15, people started selling those items on eBay. This is the time when eBay was becoming popular as well. So all of a sudden, all this in-game wealth I had accumulated became translatable to U.S. dollar wealth. Wow! And it was Pretty crazy prices back in the day. Like there was a one bow, I think it was called the Windforce Bow, was selling for thousands of dollars on eBay. So this little like kind of hobby interest thing that became learning economics in the trenches became like my first business in a way, you know, like I didn't know it, but it just happened. I like to joke that I was trading digital assets back in 95, maybe. So this is whatever, 15 years before Bitcoin. Yeah. And so that's something else that may have set me up for all of this path. And the reading has always been helpful. The writing is extremely painful, but I think when you can successfully read about a topic and then write about it and then talk about it, talk about what you've written specifically, it crystallizes knowledge in your mind in a way that nothing else can it becomes second nature. Like you could talk to me about things that I've written and I don't even have to think about them so much. It's like an automatic program. I can just call up and talk about it. So maybe advice or maybe wisdom, I don't know. Do that. No matter what you're doing, and no matter what field you're in, wherever you're trying to advance yourself, go fucking read about it and then try to write about it and then try to talk about what you've written. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. For the last
0: five years, we've worked with over 600 couples, and we've helped them to get in sync, play to each other's strengths, and start making the big money moves. And for the first time ever, we are lifting the lid on everything we've learned. We're running a live online webinar, and in this webinar, we're going to share exactly how our new money method works, and how you can use it to find your financial fast mode and fund your big goals and dreams. If you're ready to get beyond learning and start winning together as a team, all you need to do to secure your spot is hit that link in the episode description below, or Go to cashflowco.com.au forward slash new money method. And hey, if you're coming along, don't forget to bring your better half. Hey, just a quick intermission here because I want to tell you about the epic new tool we've unleashed in the podcast community. We call it Compass. And the legends who have joined us on the journey are using it to convert new knowledge into action and results. Imagine you had a coach working with you to motivate you, build your confidence, and guide you from dreaming to achieving. That's what Compass is. And that's what it does. It's fun and it's totally free to you when you join the community. Just hit that link in the show notes and you'll be leveling up in no time. It's a writer's to think, isn't it? That's actually a pretty good segue. I would love to just expand on a couple of things that you've written and maybe even said on the podcast. I pulled out some key ideas that I thought I would love to expand upon and, and hear more about from you. And you sort of touched on this earlier when you talked about the creature from Jekyll Island and central banking coming across that whole idea. Talk to me about this comment that you made as a tweet inflation is legal counterfeiting, counterfeiting is illegal
1: inflation. Well, that pretty well sums it up. I don't know how much more I can say about it. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways to come at this, but one would be, okay, it's rather obvious that money is redeemable for goods and services. I don't think that's a big argument. That's what a currency or a money is, right? It's something, it's a universal medium of exchange that you can take to a vendor and give Mm. them for the good or service, right? And then they will use the money to do the same thing with others and that's how an economic system works. Now, goods and services obviously as well require human time and energy to produce. Your dinner does not cook itself, your car did not build itself, your car does not repair itself, etc, etc, etc. So, it would make sense or at least stand a reason that the money you are exchanging for goods and services, which require energy. There is no good or service that doesn't require human time or energy to produce. The money should somehow be a reflection of that necessary sacrifice for producing the goods and services, right? The money should have some cost to it as well, almost intuitively Mm -hmm. through that line of reasoning. Well, that's what gold was, right? Gold, really hard to discover, extract, refine, produce it also had these other properties of money which we don't have to get into but that's basically what made gold hard money or honest money that it was hard to produce so it was an honest reflection of the time and energy that money is a universal medium of exchange for okay great mm. what's mm. the problem with gold it's heavy it's physical it's hard to move around so if you want to have a global economy where we're sending goods and services all over the world we need the money to be very portable right Ideally, speed of light portable, where we can just wire transfer or Bitcoin transfer or whatever, Venmo, it doesn't matter. You want money to be that fast so you can get on. Like The money side of the transaction is necessary, but you want to economize that as much as possible so that you can focus on production. So another way to say that maybe is in any business, you want less admin and you want more producers, right? more people doing work, less people counting the beans, so to speak. Yes. So that's what we did with gold. We took gold, which was a good money. It was too slow, not affordable enough. So we put gold in a central repository, which was initially a warehouse. And the warehouse would issue receipts for the gold. You have warehouse receipts that are paper receipts or call options on gold. So I can take that paper to the warehouse custodian at any time and get gold out. And you can now, people, obviously, this is all emergent. People start trading these warehouse receipts as if they're real gold, as if they're as good as gold, because indeed they were redeemable for gold. So that solved the portability problem for gold, but it introduced the human element. I didn't need to trust anyone that gold would be good money, right? There's this, no one could counterfeit it. No one could produce more of it. So it was an honest reflection of time and energy. Once you put all the gold in one place and start abstracting gold into a paper, you now need to trust that custodian I need to trust the warehouse custodian, which later becomes the bank, which later becomes the central bank, that they will not issue more paper than they have gold reserves to justify. So of course, human nature being what it is, you cannot concentrate that much power in one place and not expect it to corrupt. And indeed, that's what has happened throughout all of human history. So we demonize bankers and central bankers a lot, but there's a big element of the political apparatus here. It's like when a country would go to war and they needed money. Why try to go and tax people? That's arduous and expensive and risky. And why not just go to the bank and tell them to print you some fucking money or stop letting people redeem their gold from your bank, right? They would suspend convertibility or redemptions, as we said earlier. And then you could just use the money. You could just steal the money, basically, to fund your war effort. So once you get into that dynamic where we're running on a paper based currency, that's no longer pegged to gold because it can't be redeemed for gold. Well, how expensive is it to print new sheets of paper, right? Not very expensive. You can just print a lot of paper or even better if it's electronic like we do today, the Fed does control C, control V basically, right? (laughs) Copy-paste. Add zeros to the database, expand the money supply, spend the new dollars as you see fit, and then let All the productive market actors inside of the economy bear the cost of that. They are basically being taxed via inflation, whereas shareholders of the central bank are profiting in perpetuity, and those nearest to political apparatus are benefiting from the stolen proceeds of inflation. So what does all this mean? We disconnected money from the time and energy reality it is intended to signify, and we gave individuals the power to print money, and what has happened? The same thing that happens every time humans have ever printed money throughout all of recorded history. They print the money until it is meaningless, right? Every single time. And if you do that, if the money becomes meaningless, the division of labor collapses, societal cohesion is destroyed, right? Just imagine if your money's meaningless, how many people can you cooperate with when the money works, right? I can order stuff from Amazon that's shipped from wherever in the country and it gets sitting on this long supply chain and arrives to me well, if my money doesn't work, I can trust like what, five people within earshot of me, maybe like my family and my close friends. That's it. So it totally implodes social cohesion, I guess you would say. And it's all because of this fraud, this lie, this deceit that's integrated into the money, which is this dollar (laughs) was an image of gold. It was a representation for gold. It was a representation of time and energy actually expended in the real market process. And when you divorce that, it's no longer what it claims to be, right? It's fake energy. It's fake time. It's theft. There's no other way to put it. It's extremely corrosive. It's extremely corrosive. This is what I spend so many hours on the show talking about, like all the different domains that it impacts and destroys. So... In a nutshell, to answer your original question, there is mechanically zero difference between counterfeiting a US dollar bill or any fiat currency and inflating the supply of the US dollar or the fiat currency. It is mechanically the same thing. It's not even an argument. This is not an opinion. This is a hard and fast reality. And if you think about it for two seconds, you'll see it. How much time and energy went into producing that dollar bill? Whether it was George Floyd peddling a counterfeit US dollar bill or it's Jerome Powell hitting Control C, Control V and creating six trillion US dollars, it's the same thing.
0: But one guy gets killed and the other guy gets hailed. That's crazy.
1: Exactly. You're absolutely right about that, that we demonize people that counterfeit a currency that the Federal Reserve counterfeits by the trillion is a testament to the mass psychosis inflation induces in human beings.
0: And it's so interesting. We recently had Jeff Booth on the show and he talked about something very similar to what you just said there around when you mess with the money, you manipulate information because money is an information technology, right? I don't know if this is happening in America, but we are having building companies fail. It feels like every week another building company fails because they're very capital-intensive businesses that Mm -hmm. require forward planning. And because the money is so manipulated now, none of them are planning correctly and they're all going under. This is just kind of the start, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. And that's another great, this is why I love the question, what is money? And this is why I named the show that because there are so many answers to that question. Like I just gave you one spiel about inflation and gold and all that. But Jeff Booth is very much correct. that money is an informational tool, right? The price signals that propagate through money are what coordinate most human action in the world. It's more important than spoken language in my estimation. Spoken language is clearly very important. We all use it every day, we think in it, but it's a low cost signal. Just like counterfeiting that fiat currency, like it costs you nothing to control C, control V, or to print new paper, doesn't cost me a lot to produce words, right? I can produce a lot of words, as can you, as can everybody. So it's a low cost signal, And this is why, like the old adage, right? actions speak louder than words, obviously. But you know what speaks even louder than actions? Is capital at risk. Because how many actions does it take you to accumulate your investment nest egg or your slug of capital that you're planning to retire on or invest? Like, It's the culmination of millions of actions to accumulate that capital. And then you need to invest that capital and hopefully to a productive end. If that investment and allocation process that's coordinated by the price signal is now being distorted because you're just producing new paper claims on capital. You're not producing new capital when you print money. This is very important, right? Federal Reserve prints 6 trillion dollars, no new factories, no new knowledge, no new yes. equipment, just paper claims on all the existing stuff. That's all that's happened. Yeah. This creates that there's that lie, right? There's this distortion that all of a sudden the people that had property rights in the stuff. They're now having their property rights violated via inflation, that the people producing the new money are stealing from those who cannot produce the new money. That's bad enough. But further to that is that you're distorting, disturbing, interrupting, manipulating the informational signal that the price propagates. So what do you get? You get these, especially in capital intensive industries, as you said, you interrupt entrepreneurs' ability to engage in economic planning. So when money's being depreciated, there's an incentive that creates a tendency to want to borrow money, right? If I know the dollar's depreciating 10% year over year, the shit, and I can borrow at 3%, well, then I want to borrow today, put it in anything with any yield, any productive enterprise whatsoever, and I'll pay you back depreciated dollars. That's great. But what does that do? It fragilizes the entire production structure because now all mm. of these economic actors that would otherwise you know, be prudent and accumulate savings, they're now incentivized to take on a bunch of leverage. And that very accumulation of leverage is what creates the economic shock that ultimately liquidates those guys. So it's very insidious. And again, we're back to the misallocation of capital that is driven by, I keep coming back to the word distortion. I wish I had a better word for you, but you could think of the price as, again, if it's a high cost signal, it's like a visual perceptual apparatus, right? You're observing the world through money. Cost of capital. If you're a builder, maybe you're buying wood and steel and glass. So you need to plan how much you're going to buy, when you're going to buy it, what you expect the price to be, what you think you can sell it for. You know, all of these calculations go into development business, let's say. But when you start distorting the very mechanism by which you see, it's like putting sludge on your windshield and trying to drive down the road at 90 miles an hour. Like you just can't see as well. So you're going to crash. It's a probability. It's just going to happen. You know, when that happens in enough places, that's what a recession is. It's just a widespread collapse of these misled businesses due to distorted prices. And if you're seeing it ramp up now, yeah, it's very likely it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better.
0: Yeah. And so there's another comment here that you said this directly, but it's more in a presentation that you did around that ability to create money. So you, you got your piece around masters and slaves of money. Can you talk a little bit about? That example you give around the African agri beads and how that ultimately led to that slave trade and where it always ends up, ultimately.
1: Yeah, so when you start to study the history of money, you'll quickly see how intertwined it is with basically everything awful that humans have ever done. War, slavery, tyranny, deception, all the bad things. And so in the piece, Masters and Slaves of Money, I wanted to write something that was very accessible to people to just understand like what fiat currency is. It's not even an analogy per se. Fiat currency is a pyramid scheme. Ultimately, you could define a pyramid scheme as a system of network marketing where those at higher tiers profit from those at lower tiers. Right? And we've There's been a million different types of pyramid schemes. A Ponzi scheme is a subset of a pyramid scheme. But That is precisely how the central bank works, is that it is the custodian of gold, then via legal monopoly, which is at the point of a gun, right? This is through legislation that's backed by force. No one else can print money. Everyone else is forced to use money as legal tender in the settlement of all debts, public and private. So what does that mean? Well, the central bank holds real money, which is gold. They have the exclusive authority to counterfeit or inflate paper tokens for that money, redemption certificates or warehouse receipts for that gold. This is pre-1971. So they can extract money or extract wealth from market actors just by printing money. Now, that's maybe okay if market actors have the right to take the dollar to the treasury and redeem gold, real money, right? Well, that's the Achilles heel, basically, from the government standpoint. So what did they do? There's a long history I'll skip right now, but let's just say in 1971, we suspended convertibility of dollars into gold. So now what is fiat currency? It's a totalizing pyramid scheme that a select few can just produce new debt tokens. It's not even money. It's not even currency. I guess it's a currency because it flows, but it's just a debt token. And they can force people by decree, by legislation under the threat of actual force, right? Imprisonment or violence, to use these uncollateralized debt tokens that are undergoing default in all, all the time. That's another way to think about inflation. Government has accumulated too much debt. It cannot pay it back. What does it do? It prints money to pay back the debt. It externalizes the cost of that debt onto productive market actors. So what is inflation? Inflation is slow motion default. If you ever hear stupid shit like, oh, the United States has never defaulted on their debt send them straight to wtfhappen1971.com and tell them to call you in the morning. So to get back to the masters and slaves piece, I wanted to write something that really captured the essence of how fiat currency works mechanically. And I even created a few visuals in there, like actually showing the pyramids themselves, how they work, how the flows work. And it was useful to connect this to Bitcoin too, because there's ultimately let's call it a network marketing dynamic to any new money. That's what we're doing with Bitcoin today, right? I'm acquiring Bitcoin every day in anticipation of the rest of the world figuring out what money is ultimately. And you're basically betting on the competitive dynamics that have shaped money throughout all of human history. You're betting on those continuing to hold for that reason. If you figure it out first, this is why people call Bitcoin an IQ test sometimes, that you get to benefit Disproportionately to later adopters. All right, if you get Bitcoin when only five percent of the world understands Bitcoin, then you've got a lot of upside in front of you. So that was a useful comparison. But to rewind back to the beginning of the piece, so I did that. But to work into the description of money itself, I started with this vignette in Africa, and it's really bad. In a nutshell, the transatlantic slave trade was a product of currency counterfeiting. So I think this was 16th century Africa. They had used glass beads. For centuries as money. Glassmaking technology in Africa was relatively primitive. So glass beads were hard to produce. This meant they could not be easily counterfeited or inflated, right? They had a reliable, predictable supply across time. This gave them the monetary property of scarcity that market actors inside of Africa could use, right? And obviously glass beads satisfied the other properties of money, like divisibility, durability, recognizability. They satisfied these necessary properties, but were also scarce. Well, Europeans come into Africa, they see Africans using these glass beads as money, and the realization occurred to at least one or more Europeans that, hey, back in Europe, glassmaking technology is much more sophisticated. I can print these things by the whatever the number. I can make a lot of glass beads really cheap. I can then import them into Africa and use these glass beads, these cheaply made glass beads, to buy real wealth. Right, to buy real stuff. And that's exactly what happened. Europeans started packing like ship hulls full of glass beads. So as many beads as you could fit on a ship, and they would ship them down into Africa. They would use them to buy up goods and services, and they would ship the goods and services or you know, keep it or ship them back to Europe, whatever they wanted to do. And it was done over many decades. So it wasn't like a flash hyperinflation And there's a lot of like back and forth. Some of the Africans started to detect the counterfeit bead versus the actual bead and they they wouldn't use them. But then the counterfeiters would adapt. They get a little bit better. So there's all this kind of cat and mouse game going on for decades. But ultimately, the Europeans were successful in usurping African wealth via this strategy. And they basically impoverished Africans to the point of them selling themselves or others into slavery. I'm not saying that this is like a singular causative factor, but it was definitely a significant contributor to the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. So the brutal irony in all of this, and I have a visual in the piece, is that those very ships that were packed full of glass beads would later leave African shores packed full of slaves. And if you see these floor plans on the ships, it's brutal. Just like they packed the beads in the hull, they would pack humans in the hulls. They'd pack them everywhere you could pack them. Like And the conditions were just absolutely atrocious in every way. The transatlantic slave trade ended up being a 365-year affair. There were 14 million Africans exported from Africa to Europe and North America. Two million of them died in transit because the conditions were so fucking horrible. And I think the whole story just speaks to the dire, horrific consequences of Counterfeiting money and how it's used as a weapon ultimately. And I give a few other examples in there, but that's a pretty good start. And the last thing I would say about it is I make the point in the piece that another way to think about money is that, in the same way that, let's say, a stock certificate is title to company capital, right? If I own a share of Apple stock, that means I own a share of the capital that the company owns, right? So it's basically my claim on the capital of that company. Well, You could think of money as title to human time itself, because it can be used to redeem time from anyone, right? If I want someone to do something, I can pay them to do it. And although it might not work with everyone individually, everyone does have a price for most things. So in that framing of money as title to human time, you can think about counterfeiting money as stealing human time. And so the connection there, the through line, was that it was this counterfeiting of African glass bead money that was a theft of time, right? We're just stealing their goods and services, the fruits of their productive labor, let's say. But it led to the actual full-on, visceral, brutal theft of human time, right? Stealing people, packing them in ships. Shipping them to another fucking continent and putting them to work. That's just the direct theft, by the way. The 14 million people, 2 million dead in transit. What about all their kids? What about all their progeny? Mm. How many generations of them were forced into labor, forced into slavery? We're still dealing with the consequences today in America. Yeah. Like this cultural divisiveness, a lot obviously has its roots in slavery from the southern states and intended. To write a piece, again, that was very accessible, but also spoke to the depths of the spiritual malaise counterfeiting money creates in the world. Yeah, that piece was very popular. So I hope that helped answer the question.
0: What I find really ironic about it, too, is that um, you know if we fast forward to George Floyd, a descendant, no doubt, of these people, he gets the mm-hmm. same idea. He says, hey, these guys have been counterfeiting money. Why can't yeah. I counterfeit money? That guy gets yeah. thrown in jail and he gets killed. It's a shocking turn of events, isn't it? But
1: Yeah, it's a totally fucked deal. I mentioned George Floyd in the piece because it's just such a stark disparity, right, to have a guy arrested for a counterfeit $20 bill, whereas the Fed's literally just pumping it out by the trillion. There's a visual in the piece too, because as humans, we can't get our head around these numbers, millions, billions, trillions. You can't even fathom how much a trillion dollars is, but there's a visual in the piece that shows pallets stacked of $100 bills, what a million looks like, what a billion looks like, what a trillion looks like. I hesitated to use that example of George Floyd because it gets people really focused on the individual. And I've had some people come back and be like, oh, George Floyd was a drug addict or whatever he did wrong. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's not the point. Point is it could have been anyone. I don't care who it was. Yeah. They counterfeited a $20 bill and got arrested for it, which is the same thing the Fed is doing. So yeah, that was the point.
0: We'll have a link yeah. to that article of yours in the show notes too, because I I'd highly encourage you if you're listening to this go and read the article and look at these visuals because it is shocking when you look at the scale of the amount of money that's been printed. So like we've said, we're all paying the price now in terms of the inflation that we're seeing. So our time and labor mm-hmm. has been stolen in that sense. But mm-hmm. what is the link between Bitcoin and the number zero?
1: Oh, that's a whole nother can of worms. That's another piece that I wrote. You know, time constraining here, I will say that the title of the piece is the number zero in Bitcoin. The impetus for me writing that piece was to answer the question: What makes Bitcoin different than all these other ten thousand cryptos, crypto assets, shit coins, whatever you want to call them? And this is one of the trickiest questions to answer, actually, because it it requires an understanding of some relatively sophisticated concepts, like path dependent, you know, network effect how really the evolution of money itself. But what I wanted to do was to find a historical example of an idea whose time had come. So there's this old saying that, and this has happened throughout history, which is kind of interesting, is that once the conditions are in place for a certain type of discovery, sometimes people not working together will discover the same thing around the same time at different places in the world. So there's a lot of examples of this. Off the top of my head, there's one, I was talking to a guy earlier, talking about the argumentation ethics in libertarian philosophy, and he was saying how one guy wrote about it, but there were two other guys that didn't know each other. They were all writing about the same thing at the same time. So punchline there is that when the conditions are right, certain ideas seem to emerge. And if it's a really useful idea, it's really hard to stop an idea. So there's a quote that says, there's nothing more unstoppable than an idea whose time has come. And so in trying to find a historical comparable for what I think the proliferation of Bitcoin would look like, I started looking and thinking for this idea, this unstoppable idea that was very impactful and transformative. And you know, I, to this day, I don't really know how I got to zero. I think I just had a flash of insight about it. It's like, it's got to be something, it can't be tangible because Bitcoin's not tangible. It has to be purely an idea because it's, that's, it's, it's like a mind virus to use another analogy. It just spreads. It's like the wheel, right? Once you discover the wheel, It's not about any one wheel. It's about the idea of the wheel. And all of a sudden, once that's out, it's so useful. Obviously, we still use it today. (laughs) I've got four wheels on my car outside. That cat ain't going back in the bag, as they say, right? It's just a super useful idea. And once that knowledge has revealed itself, there is no hiding it again. And so when you study the history of mathematics, There's been a lot of attempts at developing numeral systems across time, a lot of different systems. And most of us are probably familiar with Roman numerals, right? We still use these in books and things like that. What most numeral systems lacked, prior to Brahmagupta, which was an Indian mathematician, I think in the sixth or seventh century, what they lacked was zero, which was a numeral, a numeric symbol. That represented nothingness. Like, doesn't every number, as you might notice, like represents something, right? One is representing anything that's singular. Two, anything that's in a pair. Three, anything that exhibits threeness, for instance. And for a long time, even Pythagoras, all the great, the ancient Greek mathematicians, they, didn't, they thought zero was like a nonsensical concept. It didn't make sense to have a numeral system for, no, for nothing, It didn't make sense. But uh, because, and another reason, the reason, part of the reason why is because the ancient Greeks thought of number as form or number as music. So they thought it was a thing, all like a sensible, touchable thing. So to say no thing as a number doesn't, it's a a contradiction in terms. So again, time constraining here. The Hindu-Arabic numeral system was basically the first numeral system that included zero. And it started to, zero basically made the numeral system so much more efficient and that you could calculate, you could calculate, you could perform calculation in much smaller page space in much less time and with much higher accuracy. So for merchants around the world, like anyone that touched the zero-based numeral system was like, fuck yeah, I have to use this, right? I can, like we were talking about earlier, maximizing the productive time relative to the administrative time. The zero-based numeral system lets you minimize the administrative time because it's faster, better, easier, less prone to error, right? It's obvious that any merchant that used a zero-based numeral system would naturally outcompete those that did not. So it becomes this Darwinian process and so, Hindu-Arabic numeral system starts out-competing all the other numeral systems in the world. It even gets it gets to Europe, I forget the dates exactly, but when it gets to Europe, it meets strong ideological resistance, strong legal resistance, right? They tried to outlaw it, they tried to ban it. This is why the number zero has its relationship with the word cipher, actually. Cipher was like, in, in regards to encryption. And basically, despite all those attempts, all those efforts, nothing could stop the idea whose time had come. It was just a supremely useful idea. And now, fast forward to today, what do we do? We all use this global, universal language of the Hindu-Arabic numeral system. It's not the Hindu-Arabic numeral system anymore. The zero got integrated into all the other numeral systems, but it's a factor 10-based, with a zero numeral system. That's what we all use worldwide today. And the follow-on consequences of that were unbelievable the medieval church collapsed because their entire worldview was based on the aristotelian notion of a finite universe so there was the atom was the smallest elementary particle you could not go below the surface of an atom and similarly we lived in a macrocosmic atom so the night sky was like the inside of the atom we inhabited and the stars were supposed to be little holes in it and just like pure light coming from the outside, the light of God or whatever it was. And so zero, so there was no infinity. There's no infinity and there's no zero in this Aristotelian notion of the universe, right? It's, it's explicitly desi- denied the existence of these two concepts. Well, once the Hindu-Arabic numeral system comes into existence, zero exists, obviously, and zero implies infinity. If you divide by zero, you actually get infinity. You get various kinds of infinities, yes. actually. So that was one thing. The dominant institution of the world collapsed because they, their ideological, let well, would I'd say this, the church had ideological dominance in the world because it represented itself as the dominant institution on earth and earth was the center of the universe and the universe was this giant atom, no infinity, no void, right? That was the church's story. Well, that entire story got undermined by the existence of zero. Um yep. This led to, much later on, it led to the development of calculus, and calculus is one of the most important tools in the world. Every modern science uses calculus. So I won't go into that rabbit hole, but if you could just imagine every modern science not existing, that's what zero, if we hadn't discovered zero, that's what would be a consequence. And then finally, my favorite things about zero is that it implied, it led to the discovery of imaginary numbers. And imaginary numbers is what led to the digital age. Frankly, zeros and ones and wireless communication, like all of this, has its foundation imaginary numbers. So, I mean, boom! Like, completely <laughs> blew my mind. Oh the, oh, the last thing I'd say about that is zero was discovered in meditation. That mathematician I mentioned, that ancient Indian mathematician Brahmagupta, he says he discovered zero, whatever that means, in meditation. That it yeah. was a symbol for the void. It was a symbol for sunyata, I think is the pronunciation. I haven't looked at this in a while. But this, this realm of non-being, pure nothingness. And so that was fascinating that a concept discovered in meditation had such practical and worldly consequences. And then the connection to tie this all back to Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is just an idea. It's just information. But really, it's the core idea of Bitcoin is that it's money with 0% inflation. Yeah. It's money that nobody can change, right? It's a economic singularity to some extent. And now the idea is out of the bag and given its great and necessary value to human beings in a world flooded with counterfeit fiat currency. I think one of the lines I have in the piece is humanity needs a zero fucks money, a money that cannot be confiscated, inflated, or stopped to basically fight off the specter of central banking once and for all. And I think that's what what Bitcoin represents is an unstoppable idea, similar to zero.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Man, I'm conscious of time and I'm about to wrap up here, but how do you see it playing out over the next, let's say five to 10 years? What do you think is going to happen? You know, in the context of where we are, I know you're you're all over Ray Dalio's work, kind of reading his book now, the changing world order, long-term debt cycle. Where do you think we're at in that process?
1: Well, we're definitely accelerating the debasement of currency. That's very obvious to everyone now, right? Even on the government-manipulated CPI prints, we're at 50-year highs, post-war highs. So I think we're headed towards another collapse of currency. There have been, again, I challenge anyone to just open a book on monetary history. You could start with something simple, Grab this book titled Fiat Currency Inflation in France. It's a hundred pages. You can read it in two hours, but it goes through the whole gamut of like people. They have a hyperinflation, they learn their lesson, they all agree to never print money again. And then, you know, a couple of generations later, they're doing it again. It's like we keep going back to the bottle, so to speak. It's like an addiction. Humans are just addicted to printing money. We can't stop ourselves. So We're going through that again, right? We have had, depending on where you live, stable and predictable inflation rates for the past 30, 40 years, you know, after the 70s. But now it's escalating. And I think it only accelerates over time. There's one of the concepts in that book is, uh, France book I just mentioned, is the law of accelerating issuance and depreciation. So as you print more money, the stimulative effect it has on consumption is dampened with each wave of printing. So you have to print exponentially more to get the same diminishing effect over time. This is furthering the misallocation of capital, furthering the confusion induced through manipulation of the price signal. So, Disorganizing economic affairs. That's what all these supply chain disruptions are, by the way. Wherever you live in the world right now, you're probably dealing with them to some extent. It is not the supply chains causing inflation. Turn off your TV. It is the inverse. When you debase currency, you confuse market actors, you confuse human coordination. That's what creates supply chain disruptions. I think things are going to get worse. I think they're just going to keep getting worse until there's uh you know we really start to see the breaking at the seams we're going to see political upheaval, social rioting. I think we'll see governments continue to try to intervene and fix this, you know, they'll do price fixing, that's already being talked about now. They're going to do more minimum wage, more helicopter money. None of this fixes the problem. This all makes it worse it's the most self-defeating activity humans have ever engaged in again is trying to like stop printing money and stop putting band-aids on all the problems you create by printing money and the insanity it gets it's this is what this is why i think it's so i think it's one of the core contributory factors to mass psychosis cuz you're seeing things right now like in california they're sending people an inflation relief check if I could challenge you to stop and ask yourself for one second, what the fuck is an inflation relief check? You printed too much money, so there's inflation, so we're going to print more money and send you a check to cover the inflation. This is not a yeah. joke. This is like serious yeah. leaders of the one of the largest economies in the world, California. This is what we're doing. We're destroying our minds, ultimately. and That's another way... To think about money is that it is an extension of the human mind, right you think through money again that price yeah. signal if the price of copper goes up, I don't need to know the story about what happened I just that's my incentive I can eat I will either yeah. buy less I'll produce more or I'll use substitutes just because the number changed so it's it is integrated to your mind when you debase the tool the software that's integrated to your mind, you destroy your mind and you yeah. end up yeah. cutting inflation relief checks as a leader in california so I think the mass psychosis will escalate. I think things are going to get worse before they get better. I think Bitcoin is going to continue to be right about all of this, and in the end, I think Bitcoin wins, and I think it wins in a very decided fashion. Like I think all yeah. currencies collapse into Bitcoin in the long run. I think the state as a result, shrinks. You know, I think what Zero did to the medieval church, I think Bitcoin does to the nation-state, just shrinks it as the dominant. Makes it no longer the dominant institution in the world, shrinks its relevance, and so to end on an optimistic note, we have a very bright orange future in front of us. But as we yep. say, it is tends to be darkest before the dawn. So yeah, we shall see.
0: Yeah, Mate, thank you so much. I mean, that, that's how I'm seeing it, and I know it can be dark when you think about the challenges we're up against. But I ultimately see it the same way, and um, you know, the way I look at it is, all right, Bitcoin is insurance against this failing system it's also a Mm -hmm. vote for the future you want and that's what Jeff Mm -hmm. Booth talks about as well like put your energy Mm -hmm. into the future that you want and it's so much better than to to vote with your money than it is to stand there with a picket and a poster (laughs) and you know try to tell someone to change so I really appreciate you coming on a
1: high cost signal like we said earlier right words on picket signs don't mean nearly as much as where you put your savings so as you said I love that quote from Booth or you whoever said it it's a vote for the future you want and money is the yeah. vote that matters, not your words. Your words are great. Educate. You know, obviously, I do it for a living. I believe in it, but none of it holds a candle to where you put your life energy.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Mate, where can people learn more from you? And also, who else do you think is a compelling voice that people should learn from in this space right
1: now? Oh, man. There are so many good voices, and more every day. You know, Bitcoin just keeps recruiting the best and the brightest. Um, I really, you know, depends on what you like to learn, how you like to learn. If you like podcasts, I'd check out Peter McCormick, you know, what Bitcoin did. He's got a wide variety of hosts. My friend John Vallis has a great podcast that's a bit more down the rabbit hole. Um, he's also focused on kind of the personal transformation you see in the lives of Bitcoiners, which is a whole nother area we didn't go into, but Bitcoin is changing yeah. people. It's crazy. It's yeah. changed me. I it's crazy. And it's all tends to be all positive. These are all like you people becoming here healthier, healthier, more family oriented, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all on the podcast front. I think Natalie Brunel has a great show. I actually Coin Stories. She's a great podcast host. You like to read, you know, the written works of Gigi, really good stuff. I don't his book is 21 Lessons. 21 uh, Lessons. Bitcoin. And yeah. Yeah, something like that. And his Twitter handle is something weird. D E R G I G I. John Vallis has written some good notes. stuff. Corey Clipston does a Daily Bitcoin that's really good. He just like basically echoing other people's work. There's a guy, Tomer Strolight, that's written some good work. Carter has great writing. You could check out Pierre Rochard. He's also a really good written guy. As far as speakers, no one holds a candle to Michael Saylor as a, sh- uh, I guess a self pat on the back in a way. I would say, go check out the Sailor series. I did 17 episodes of Sailor, and oh. it's fucking dynamite. I mean, I've listened to it three times yeah. having created it and yeah. done all that. People are just- It's insane.
0: Yeah. If you're listening to this, you if you want changed. an insight yeah. into, yeah, <laughs> just, you're not just going to learn about Bitcoin. You're going to learn about humanity on a level that it's just- I don't know. I've never come across it, anything like it. A, and, yeah,
1: it's an MIT master's degree in twenty-five hours on like energy, anthropology, technology, human action. It's truly unbelievable. And I take no credit yeah. for that, other than having asked Michael the question, "What is money?" and letting yes. him <laughs> run. And he just—he's unbelievable. Um, we'll have that in the show notes and, if you're listening. We'll,
0: de- and I highly encourage you to listen to it.
1: Yeah, and then for me, you know, I'm at Breed Love Twenty Two, B R W D L O V E two Two on Twitter. You can check out there's link there's a link on my Twitter profile to my Linktree, which has links to all my work. And then you can check out the Substack, which is the Freedom Analex. And yeah, you know, happy to help any way I can. Feel free to DM me or reach out. I don't I get a ton of DMs. I don't respond to them all, but I'll do my best. And uh, I very grateful for everyone that's a part of bitcoin and you know for those that follow my work you really i'm just overwhelmingly grateful for how much i have been able to align my passion with my profession and this thing we're working on is very meaningful so if you're if you're looking for a change bitcoin will welcome you with open arms
0: I mean, I'm finding that from everyone in the community, like yourself, opening yourself up to this opportunity and responding to my DM and Jeff Booth, Natalie Brunel, I've had and I've interviewed Corey Klipstein, I'm going to be interviewing next week. And frankly, there's a lot more in this for me than there is for you. And I'm finding that you don't care. You guys don't care. It seriously is the way you're using your time. It's, you know, it says more than words.
1: Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, mate. Talk soon.